Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Dale Sky Jones, Executive Chancellor of Oaksterdam University. Welcome, Dale. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here, Kira. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Dale Sky Jones became the blueprint for cannabis policy reform as the spokeswoman and legislative liaison for the first statewide legislation effort in 2010. Oaksterdam ignited the international debate for cannabis legalization and led to massive decriminalization successes that have changed countless lives for a quarter century. Dale's imperative is to address the inequities created by prohibition while driving the success of the cannabis industry, having educated over 50,000 people from over 40 countries. She focuses on unwinding the drug war, descheduling as civil rights and social justice imperatives. I have been so looking forward to having you as a guest on this show, Dale, and I am really curious about your cannabis story. I've heard bits and pieces of it, but I'm really interested to learn about how you ended up becoming, as it says in your bio, a blueprint for cannabis policy reform and end up as the executive chancellor of Oaksterdam. <laughs> Accidentally, Kira. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it was so unusual. Uh, I, I can imagine so many listeners would relate that not once did I'm going to run a cannabis college or a cannabis company fly out of their mouths as little kids when someone asked what they wanted to be when they grew up. And I, in fact, had an amazing boss once upon a time who shared with me, I don't know what you're supposed to do. It's not this. And it's not because you're not good at this, you're good at this, but you're supposed to do something else. I don't know what, it's just not invented yet. And I, I remember that moment as, you know, really a, a fulcrum in my life because shortly thereafter, I took the plunge. I left my very secure job of, you know, six years with a large multinational corporation. And, you know, I just vested my 401k and finally earned like the extra week of vacation time <laughs> and went to manage doctors in really the bastion of conservatism in California, uh, which is Orange County. Mm. Um, and at the time I was living up in Seattle, it seems like wherever I just lived was next to legalize. Um, so I've, I've marked that. I moved to Seattle after living in Colorado. Um, so it, it it started really on the patient side and searching for answers for the patients that were coming in to see the doctors. I came from training. I was a, a corporate trainer and a trainer of adults in really every capacity of my adult life in one respect or another, whether it was in my title or not. And so the very first thing I looked for was education uh, for my patients uh, that were coming in to see my doctors. and there was none other than this place out of Northern California. And it was actually the patient ID center 
that had stemmed from the first federal case that went to the Supreme Court on behalf of supplying medical cannabis to the necessity patients back in the 90s. And when the OCBC, the Oakland Cannabis Buyers Cooperative, lost that case, they turned to education, helping people locate uh, safe access for their cannabis, and importantly, help people find uh, doctors. But they'd also teach people how to grow their own medicine. And it was the OCBC, uh, when they were still producing and offering medicine to patients, uh, that had a grower uh, who uh, Jeff Jones, the founder, talked into moving out and who took over uh, supplying medical cannabis after the Fed raided and, and stopped and then sued for 12 years, uh, Jeff Jones and uh, several other uh, rather world-famous names that were enjoined in his case. And at the end of the day, that was formalized and became Oaksterdam University in 2007. And that's what I stumbled into, blessing of blessings. And uh, it was Richard who decided to run the statewide campaign. Um, and I was just trying to help him find a spokesperson. And it kept being me. Uh, every time we'd look for somebody else, uh, I was the one thrust in front of the cameras, mostly because of our students. They'd gotten me really good at answering hard questions quickly, uh, which also turns out to be a neat trick on Fox News. Um, mm. And so it, it, it really, uh, we just kept not replacing me, even though I tried. Uh, and uh, we got really far. And I'd love, I'd love to talk about that, too. But that's, um, yeah, if I had known what I was getting myself into, uh, I would have firmly said no and gone the other direction. Um, and it, it really was, in the moment, an imperative uh, to see what needed to be done and know that I could do it. And I kept looking left and looking right and not seeing who was going to do it if I stepped back. Um, and so I just kept stepping forward and stepping in it. And <laughs> here I am today. I love that. I, it just it just kept showing up for it. Isn't it, isn't it true? I tell my students all the time, must be present to win, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to show up. That is nine-tenths of every success story is just that tenacity of showing up and being there. And the right time and place doesn't happen to people that get lucky. It, it happens to people that are prepared. Absolutely. Absolutely. And one element of being prepared is being educated. So right. for those who are listening who have not heard of Oaksterdam, can you give us the brief history, kind of the synopsis of what Oaksterdam is and then where you see this going in the next two to five years? Sure. Oaksterdam was really founded to try to teach qualified medical patients how to grow their own medicine. And what we discovered early was first we have to show you how to not get in trouble while growing, mm -hmm. transporting, consuming, possessing, mm -hmm. or any of those other things uh, that tend to have unfortunate interactions with law enforcement. And so we determined early uh, prerequisites. We taught you legal, the local versus uh, the federal laws, so that you understood which badge pulled you over and where not to be with cannabis. Uh, but we also taught civics as a prerequisite so that you understood your rights and your responsibilities so that you could have successful law enforcement encounters. Because let's be honest, most of them happen, you know, driving while black with pot. Mm. 
or, you know, so these are, it's, it's most likely you just get pulled over and, you know, that dreaded cloud as your jackass friend rolls down the window. So how do you react or respond to that um, in a way that you get to go home that night? And so teaching people what not to do was paramount before we taught you what to do that would likely get you in trouble. And that was our first classes. Uh, our founder um, was trying to get people to show up for law reform. He was trying to get people to show up to city council uh, for decr decriminalization and also an adult. Um, we were trying to basically just legalize for private adult use in Oakland. Um, so there were three different measures. Uh, one was lowest law enforcement priority. One was a taxation initiative. And, and the third I just mentioned. And so we're trying to get people to show up, but they just want to learn how to grow weed. <laughs> and so it became a, a bit of a trade of, well, if, if you get active, um, we'll, t we'll teach you everything you want to know. And that, that was the formation of the first curricula of the prerequisites where we taught you what you needed to know first and then what you wanted to know next. And by the time you were done, you were so powered up, you'd go right down to City Hall that Tuesday and speak your mind as a qualified patient as to what you needed uh, for protection or uh, simply an educated adult to say, look, I'm an otherwise law-abiding citizen. Why should I fear the police when we have so many other issues going on here in Oakland? Mm -hmm. And so we empowered those first folks with the knowledge of how to articulate their choices, how to articulate themselves as patients, um, and also their rights as citizens. And, and we taught them how to go change the law in their neck of the woods. And we thought it was just this one-time thing to try to, you know, get people to show up to city council. But they kept calling and saying, well, no, you've got to do the class again and again and again. And now we want to go into business. So can you teach us that too? And it just kept expanding and expanding. And over the years, the who has come to us and the why they've been there has really evolved and in some years devolved. Um, we were we suffered our own federal raid, and after getting all political with the first statewide campaign in the fifth largest economy in the world, pissed a few people off, uh, and we we suffered a four agency federal raid in April of, of 2012, which is when I went from the chancellor of the school, work you know working for Richard Lee, the founder of the school, uh, to owning the school and trying to save the school, um, which became you know, the next imperative. And so that's what we've worked on. And it's kind of um, mind boggling to realize that, that Richard ran the school for five years and I've now run it for over eight um, since then. And we've had to do what most major institutions have done. Uh, I don't think the pandemic changed history. I think it accelerated it. And mm -hmm. most educational institutions were headed towards online and virtual education. And so we had been working on that for quite a while before all this happened. And uh, just like that, I didn't mean to weave it in, but we were prepared um, mm -hmm. when when it hit. And so you might say we were also lucky, uh, but we were well prepared for the leap. And the team did a phenomenal job to take what was the only world famous hands-on campus and campuses in the world um, to a virtual, uh, which scared the hell out of me. I knew it wouldn't suck, but I could not, I still, I'm blown away at 
these programs. We've had so many four-year institutionalists come through and just say, we, we blow their presentations away full stop. And this isn't mm-hmm. about cannabis education. This is about uh, delivering education and learning outcomes full stop. Uh, so I'm really proud of how far we've come. And now you don't have to come to Oakland. Uh, we're based out of your living room. So we have two pr- predominant programs for certification, uh, the business of cannabis and, of course, horticulture. Uh, and then we've also, this past year, launched our workforce development because the industry has evolved so much uh, to really hone in specifically one classes for bud tenders. Uh, that's a certification course already available. And we are about to launch a brand new one. In fact, I think this is the first time I'm announcing it publicly. <sighs> Drum roll. Uh, we're, yeah, we're about to have an extraction and manufacturing technician uh, certification in about a month it will launch. So we're really excited about that and several other elective and free uh, programs. That is very exciting. I'm so glad to see that you are expanding into other areas of education in the, on the supply chain. Absolutely. It was uh, for so long, we were all things to all people. And we, uh, we really focused on overhauling our entire program. So even alum that went through in 2019, before we closed our doors, would be blown away at the entirely new business of cannabis program that they've never seen before. Uh, it's, it's really exciting, very cutting edge. Uh, and, you know, I'm also excited to say that we applied for and won uh, the the honor of participating with both the city of Los Angeles and the city of San Francisco's equity programs. And so mm-hmm. we're, we're currently working uh, under contract to uh, educate equity, uh, both for workforce development and to, to run their own businesses of several of, of whom we, we boast as our alumni as the firsts in their various cities for owning licenses. So that's very exciting. That, that is amazing. And I really hope that people listening to this uh, and are getting acquainted with Oaksterdam for the first time, do some research and check out the, the options they have for education through Oaksterdam. It's uh, the people that you're connected to and the where you pull your educational resources from, they they go way back. There's a there's so much credibility in Oaksterdam because you've been around for so long, you were grounded in activism and patient access, and it's really, really exciting to see you expanding into doing so many different things because as the industry grows, we need a place that we can rely on to have provide that credible education. You know, you look at a lot of traditional schools and now they're adding cannabis courses, but it is not the same thing as getting an education from and by the industry. I think it's, it's incredibly important that the four-year universities and uh, graduate and doctorate programs absolutely start to incorporate cannabis, cannabinoid, endocannabinoid systems into their their programs, horticulture programs, legal programs, um, social sciences, uh, their uh, political science. There's so many opportunities for universities to explore. And, and in fact, it's, it's their imperative uh, to do so. Unfortunately, to your point, it's it's often ungrounded and not always uh, triangulated where, it, I don't know how to put this, it's one-dimensional. 
Um, and unfortunately, at, at this point, it's we're not there yet. But I do want to just keep encouraging it. You know, we we've worked with multiple institutions over the years, from you know Kennedy, uh, the Harvard uh, Kennedy Business School, all the way through um, you know the UC system, UC system up and down the state. There's our doctors need to know what an endocannabinoid system is. I mean, imagine your doctor not knowing what your circulatory system is. Really? It's, it's mind-boggling. This is the mother of all systems. This is the regulator of our other systems. And there are so many uh, exchanges and interchanges. Not This is why cannabis, it's not a panacea. However, it does seem to work across an awful lot of mm. symptoms and systems. And that's this is why. And most doctors that, you know, if you look at them and they're older than you, they were not taught about this in medical school. Some nurses had access to the continuing medical education, but they had to choose it and seek it out. And and that's also difficult. Um, you know, the social and professional pressures of seeking out cannabis education, it's just now okay. And so it's important that we incorporate um this information, in, as especially like legal and legal defense, um, you know, CPAs, uh, real estate agents, you know, this is this is actually where we shine. You know, the business of cannabis isn't just, hey, I want to go open a dispensary. Uh, it's if you want to work with the industry and understand the business of cannabis and the unusual pressures that working in or adjacent to this industry um, can can threaten you with you know everything from banking to mm -hmm. uh, tax to ADE issues. Um, never mind the you know social legal pressures. If you have kids, if you have a divorce, um, you know all of these things can truly affect uh, your life if you're not mitigating your risks and, and understanding or. If you're trying to service people in this industry, you had better understand that, especially if you're holding yourself out as a professional, like a CPA or a lawyer. Um, so it, it helps you work with the industry. It helps you work in the industry, whether you're trying to um, you know, move laterally from a profession that you're already uh, well experienced in. Hey, we need your best practices over here, please. <laughs> um, or if you're just trying to uh, understand um, how to leverage your own business uh, within this industry. There are uh, a multitude of not just options with the education, but I believe importantly, networking with like-minded people that want to do good while they do good business. And trust me, you can make good money doing good. It's, uh, it's a tool, not, not necessarily the means to the end. Uh, and, and most folks that have gone through Oaksterdam have found that quite rewarding, that they found their mission here. Mm. Looking ahead to the future and putting on emerald colored glasses, how do you see decriminalization and or legalization that will be happening, right? With those emerald colored glasses on, that's what we're seeing sooner than later. When that happens, what do you think is going to happen with Oaksterdam? How are you getting ready to scale? Oh, woman, I was all ready to like go wonky on the cannabis policy reform. <laughs> um, as far as Oaksterdam goes, you know, the sky's the limit. The, the beauty of education is that every time something changes, then people need to be educated, uh, regardless of which direction it goes. Um, so I, I have spent most of my time 
um, over the last few years, frankly, working with regulators and government entities and um, folks that are really just part of the bureaucracy, the machine, uh, because they also need to learn how to regulate, how to how to treat this not like plutonium, um, and at the same time, uh, leaning into the policy reform itself, because our interests align uh, to work towards descheduling so that there are more open opportunities across the board for small businesses, which is frankly where women, people of color, and veterans survive and thrive when it comes to owning and operating. This is, you know, small business is the backbone of America and women, people of color and veterans are that backbone. And so making sure that we keep that open, not only means, you know, better for the consumers, better for uh, the communities, because we're not saying, well, you either have to be one of these five licenses or you're working for them or you're a criminal, pick one. Mm. Um, that you actually have options to to move up and create generational wealth there uh, also benefits us because that that, oper- that gives us an opportunity to have more people to teach. Um, but it's it's really I, I just want to share with you briefly. It's been quite heartening to work with the bureaucracy because what I found over and over again are really solid folks working truly hard to get this right from the government side. And it's inspiring. It's happening. It's finally okay. (laughs) The governor said do it. And so they're doing it. And that's, um, I think, what's really been uh, exciting and what we look forward to leaning into uh, is continuing to work with various municipalities, localities, cities, countries, um, and our own federal government, which we've, um, you know, had a multitude of conversations with uh, they're not quite ready for a federal contractor yet, uh, but it, we're moving in that direction. And as far as entering new markets, now that we're less location dependent, it's easier to uh, really lean into some of the conversations with other countries that have been reaching out to us, uh, as well as um, narrowing in on markets. Like, for instance, we just were on the ground in Oklahoma. and. Uh, you know, there are pockets that still are seeking hands-on. And so there, I believe, opportunities for that as well in limited circumstances, um, not in the near term, uh, but as we start to move towards solutions. So part of my problem is uh, saying no. It's a great, it's a great problem to have. Um, but the, the opportunity um, is, is really endless. And that's good news because we've had a lot of folks pop up <laughs> wanting to do education. Um, the good news is, is there's still a lot of education to be done. And we just hope that folks will join us in remembering how we got here, whose shoulders we stand on, and to really focus on decriminalization while we do legalization uh, and descheduling uh, to ensure that we're not ensconcing the new Jim Crow in our future policies. So you're talking about uh, women and people of color. Let's narrow down into the conversation of being a woman in the industry. So you have a unique position. You are a woman in education, in the cannabis industry, 
in a position of power. What do you see from where you sit are the areas where you would like to see more women, the areas that are challenging for women? Um, is it hard to get into education? And how do you think that if we had more women in this area of our industry, it would change things? Well, I think the first thing I would say to that is probably no surprise with respect to the hurdles that women need to overcome when it comes to financing. Uh, when it comes to, you know, whether it's uh, investment or loans, getting the money. Uh, women have proven themselves over and over again to be fully capable uh, dancing in high heels backwards when it comes to fulfilling the promises uh, that we make in a business plan. Uh, but it's getting, it's, it's getting in front of the right people and, and getting the money. And what I've noticed from my position over these last few years, after seeing women fear the industry. And uh, I have theories on why. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with needing to protect the the hearth and home and kids and, you know, sending the man out to get arrested, so to speak, um, in a lot of situations. Um, I know that to be true in my own life. So perhaps it's just my, you know, my personal observations. But for a long time, women, it was not, there were not very many women around. And this was when I went in front of international news cameras, uh, freaking out on the inside of like, good Lord, what am I mm. thinking here? And then right after I quote unquote came out as a cannabis advocate, I was pregnant. And so the first part of not seeing any faces of, of being the first to not be the one that like your mama doesn't want you to grow up to be like, you know, because it used to be, you know, comedians and, you know, dumb stoner aesthetics everywhere you looked. And here I am with a business suit and a lapel pin trying to be taken seriously on cannabis policy reform with a baby growing in my belly thinking, wow, I would have risked anything last month. It didn't occur to me that I would have this to lose now. Wow. And that's what brings me to the second point. Um, so the the first, the, I'll finish the first point first, which is I've seen a dilution after that rise. So many women came into the industry and, and it, it's awkward for me to brag, but a lot of them said, you know, I saw you and realized I could do it. And, and I realized, you know, and, and we talk about this all the time, especially when it comes to like young black girls, they need to see strong black women to know they can do that. You know, I don't care who you are. You need to somebody see somebody like you to know that could be you too. And that's some of the power of Kamala Harris now of, of I can do that and, and not have it be that other guy um, that we're, we're giving voice to the people that don't look like a white guy. Um, and a lot of women rushed in and a lot of women were successful. And the beauty of this industry especially coming from corporate America, where I had to be one of the guys to be in the room, or I just simply wasn't invited, um, that there was no glass ceiling because it hadn't been built yet. And to this point, I would argue it still hasn't. We still have, you know, a, a maybe a makeshift like um, palm leaf roof over, over uh, like a hatched roof over this bad boy. But there is no glass ceiling because the industry is not built. It's not even legal yet. We're still a movement at the end of the day in a lot of ways. And so 
it, it was really exciting and women rushed in and women took control and women opened businesses. And then around 2016, when it became legal in states that had the money, it became very diluted again. And suddenly we slipped right back into the same old percentages as every other industry with respect to women in leadership and power. And I try to, to teach that, you know, having women, not women, women, plural, in power positions in your company improves your bottom line. This isn't a token thing. This is better for your business. Like This is how I try to align, like doing good with doing good business here. You can make money and do the right thing and speak to your community and have your leadership look like your community. And so, which is half women. I'm just, I'm sure most of you have noticed so, by now. Okay, so let me... I, I when but when I'm getting ready to write my interview questions, I try to tune in to what I feel is going to come out of the conversation. And for our conversation, the word power kept coming up, and it's something that I really want to explore in 2021. And I feel that women really talk about power when it comes to their own control of themselves. You know, I take my power back. I, you know, I'm not going to give my power away. But we don't talk about exerting it over others. We don't talk about pushing women into positions of power. We don't talk about our own trajectory to power. What do we yeah. need to address? How do we change this conversation and get more comfortable with women talking with about ambition? We need power. And we can talk about it and we can go after it and it's okay. Well, you know, let, let me just briefly state the point number two I never got to, which is also empowering mothers. Because mm -hmm. I think this is the part where we talk about women, but we forget how many women have kids to deal with or conversely parents that they're caring for. And mm -hmm. so when I see all these things for women and by women and about women, I'm like, yeah, tell me how it went. Because I got three kids and a babysitter and a nanny and and school and all this other crap. Um, what's remarkable is the pandemic has actually made the industry more accessible for mothers and women because because of how many things we multitask, how many things we're responsible for and to. And so I would like to encourage us to embrace this and keep it going even after we can get in person, because this is what actually provides accessibility for so many. But when it comes to power, we got to teach our children because so many of us are jaded. I know I am. The whole last decade, my biggest regret was not just doing it. And I look back at all the crap I did and I have so many regrets about what I didn't do. It's, it's never a regret about what I did. It's a regret about not stepping up and stepping in because I was afraid of what somebody was going to think. And part of this is the younger generation, better or worse, not caring what people think in that sense and, and feeling okay with taking their power. It's part sexuality. It's being okay with being a female creature. But we have all been trained our entire lives that it is not okay to show outward ambition. That if I'm a boss in my previous careers, I was either a bitch or a slut to get there because there's no way it was my talent. And if it was me being assertive, it was the first. And if it was me being friendly, it was the second. And there was no in between. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of this 
I think is having the conversation. And for that, I salute you of like breaking that ice to say, hi, here's an elephant. Let's start nibbling its ear, shall we? This is awkward. <laughs> and lean into awkward. That's all I can suggest. <laughs> lean into awkward. That, that is my great. quote. And, you know, you're right. I, that really resonates with me. The things that I regret are the thing, not what I did do, because I take responsibility for my choices and I live with my consequences. It's the things that I didn't do. It's the opportunities that I didn't take or the doors that I didn't knock on because I was afraid or I was lacking confidence. And I, I really, I, I am hopeful that the next generation is taking more advantage of their opportunities because they're being raised in a society that is much more encouraging than we, than the society we were raised in. If you watch movies from the eighties and nineties, <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's a wonder that we've got any independence at all the way that some of these ideas of women have just kind of permeated our society. But I, I do think that, I think that having women like you in positions of power and having these conversations where you talk about the fact that you are comfortable with your power and that you're yielding it for good or wielding it for good, these are important to have because we oftentimes mistake power for evil. And so we stay away from it. We don't want people to think that we're going after it. And, you know, we don't want people to think that we're calculating our next steps because that somehow makes us seem nefarious or suspect in some way. So we really do need to have conversations that remove those barriers and those stigmas about what a woman in power, who she is and what she's capable of. It's a good thing when we have women in power. Indeed it is. And I think that the encouraging networks that have been created, especially over the last few years, um, are really giving voice to that. And in some ways, you know, it, it's tricky because women, you know, just capital W women were starting to have a resurgence there in the, you know, the whole taking your power back with the, with the Me Too movement and, and um, starting to have difficult conversations about what women endure, not, not, I don't know, daily, by the moment. You know, whether it's, you know, over email or telephone calls, mm -hmm. um, the countless uh, research on, you know, having two employees, one with a male name and one with a female name and having them switch and not telling the customer and having just entirely different experiences with the same person just as a female instead of a male. Um, we have a lot of people of conscience uh, that we need to continue to ally with. And, you know, the, this more recent social justice uh, and, and criminal justice conversation, and especially uh, Black and Indigenous people of color, um, has eclipsed the conversation about women. And I see a tremendous Venn diagram where it's, it's not one against the other. It's also within women, how can white women support women of color? Because for as difficult as it has been for me as a, a white chick, <laughs> I can't even fathom what it is to be a black chick or yeah. an indigenous chick or a person who identifies as a chick of color. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's um, and forgive my chick language, I am a middle-aged white woman, so I still say <laughs> that. <But> it's... Um, <laughs> It's with love um, that that this uh, th there's a lot of different opportunities 
um, to continue to support one another. But it's no it's no accident. We we are last. We come last. We tend to cook first and eat last. We were not granted the right to vote until the 19th Amendment. Uh, black men were granted the right to vote in the 14th. We have a long ways to go, and uh, we feel guilty. Um, I do, and I, I just want to be really clear. I'm not comfortable with my power. I have to give myself pep talks all the damn time to say it's okay to say what's on your mind because it's your job to, or what you said earlier, reminding myself, I'm using my powers for good and not evil. And if I don't do it, who will? Okay, I'll do it. That I'm not seeking glory or fame. And one of the quickest ways to like freak me out, insult me and make me slink back is to say, oh, you just did it for the attention. I won't even like go back because you think I did it for the attention. So I have issues myself. And this, so I just want to like, <laughs> this isn't a, a quick fix. I just want to be clear. This is hard. This is daily. This is hourly. This is by the minute reminding yourself, it's okay. You can do it. What's the worst that's going to happen? Thinking through that and then going for it. Because valor is not the absence of fear. It's what you do in the face of your fears. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be afraid. Do it anyway. That is such great advice. Last question before we wrap up. What are you most concerned about and what are you most excited about in the cannabis industry in 2021? Ooh, so many things. Okay. (laughs) So I'm most excited. uh, Well, no, I'll, I'll save the most excited. I'll start with the worst and go for the best. Leave on a good note. I am most fearful that under the Biden administration, we are looking at a softer, gentler prohibition, mm-hmm. that we are not focused on regulation, control, and taxation, and that what we're doing instead is just moving the bar instead of prison or jail. We're going to force you, we're going to continue to drug test you, and then we're going to force you into treatment. And not only are we going to point at all of the heads and beds for marijuana treatment, uh, who, by the way, are only there to avoid the jail sentence, because I would pick treatment over jail too. But we're also taking up the precious beds and resources for the individuals who truly self-identify as needing treatment and help on drugs that can kill them. And instead, we're just enriching not just the private prison system because of the current administration, um, allowing that again. But we're enriching the treatment facilities and drug testing facilities. And I just want to ask everybody to follow the money, and you will find people like the now senator, former governor of Florida, Rick. Uh, Yeah, he owns a multitude of treatment facilities. Of course he doesn't want this legalized. So that's what I'm most afraid of, is just a softer, gentler prohibition under Biden, and we don't move it forward. What I'm excited for, though, is his vice president. Now, it is not in her hands. The Office of the National Drug Control uh, Policy is firmly in the office of the president. But Kamala Harris is ensconced in legal cannabis. She actually wrote the voter ballot argument against the Prop 19 that we put forth in 2010. She was also the California AG that I fought hard to get elected because she was way better 
than the other guys. And you can't just be against something. You actually have to be for something. Mm. And so I believe that Kamala will do no harm. I believe that Ms. Harris understands control, taxation, regulation, and she's got a lot of friends around her that have not just seen but felt the benefits of putting the money into schools and books and equity programs instead of law enforcement. And I believe that there is a there there, that we're finally going to move away from the Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III frothing prohibitionist and the recently disposed Bill Barr, who was outwardly more realistic, but privately just as uh, obstructive, uh, that we might move towards the light here and really begin to entertain uh, true descheduling, not just rescheduling, um, that we take the teeth out of the criminalization for everyone, not just legalize if you're 21 and over and continue to criminalize our youth. It's kind of the opposite of what we're going for. Um, I, I have faith that we have a reasonable path forward. Um, and I just want to really encourage anyone that lives in Georgia, that knows someone that lives in Georgia, whose grandma, grandpa is in Georgia, whose third cousin knows someone in Georgia. I don't care how you voted for president. I hope you voted. I don't care if you're red, blue, white, green, purple, polka dot. The one thing that I guarantee you is that Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham will never let this out of committee full stop. Yeah. So I don't care how you feel about Dems or Republicans, the donkey or the elephant. You better go blue for a day in Georgia if you want to see any cannabis policy reform pass in Congress. And that includes the MORE Act. Full stop. And that is what I will leave you with is please call your congressman, call your senator and call your cousin in Georgia to go vote. Where can people find out more information about Oaksterdam and you? Conveniently, OaksterdamUniversity.com is the best place to go. And I am on social media at Dale Sky Jones. Oaksterdam is at Oaksterdam or at Oaksterdam University. And we are really all over the place. I would absolutely invite folks to come check out. We've got a couple of free classes, one on advocacy and one on exiting the opioid crisis. And so if there's anyone in your life uh, or if this is your job, uh, take a look at that class. It is research-based uh, and really phenomenal on how cannabis is not just the gateway, it's actually the exit strategy um, for, for many of the issues that ail us here in America. And I really appreciate your time, Kira. And I hope to see some of uh, these listeners uh, virtually at Oaksterdam. We are running sales right now. So you should go take a look. Our new semester starts uh, January 4th. And that week uh, is right around the corner. My husband took the Master Grower course. And oh. it set him off on a trajectory in the hemp and cannabis industry that what has, has been really, really great. It gave him a phenomenal foundation. So I highly recommend it. I haven't attended, but my husband did, and he just could not say enough great things about the curriculum and the teachers. So well done, Dale. And thank you so much for your time. And thank you for sharing your journey and your heart and yourself with us today. I, I, you really touched me and I really appreciate everything you brought today. Thank you so much for doing this, Kira. I appreciate you. Thank you. And ladies, thank you for tuning in. 
If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our website, womenempoweredincannabis.com and find your group, Supply Chain, CBD and Hemp, and the recently launched Women of Color. WDIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or who are curious about taking a leap into the industry. Join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.